Welcome everyone to the Booktopia podcast and buckle in, we're up for an adventurous ride. It's Tony Nash here, the CEO of Booktopia and today I have Australian icon, legend Dick Smith with us on the program and finally he's put pen to paper, fingers to keyboard and he has his autobiography is out on November 2nd. Welcome to the show. Thanks Tony, great to be talking to you. It's exciting. Was it a was it a struggle to to kind of extricate all the words, or was did it all come f- flowing out nice and easily for you? No, it was really difficult. In fact, what happened? The lockup last year got me into the book. It's something I've been working on and talking about for twenty years. But uh, uh, Richard Walsh from Alan and Unwin put pressure on me and said, "Dick, you've got to finish this book." And so uh, basically, we finished it only a few months ago, and. It sort of got my whole life in it, so it's a lot of stuff crammed into a small space. Wow, it must have been must be quite rewarding to finally because it's been brewing around in the background to, to finally kind of get it out and and get it there as a as a you know as a as a I guess an artifact for the future when people want to find out a bit more about you. Of course, for your family, it's probably the most important um, and friends. Yeah. yeah, definitely, it's it's really good because I've been I've got an aviation library. And I've been reading all these books of 100 years ago, the 1920s. And, uh, and I thought, gee, isn't it great these people wrote these books? And so I've got this delusion that in 100 years' time, people will probably read my book. Absolutely. <laughs> that They definitely will. That's the beauty of a book, of course. It gets Wonderful. captured forever. Um, and, and so when, when you, um, I guess, when you were um, propositioned to do the book and you thought more about... Uh, the, I mean, there's quite a few threads, adventure, there's um, your, your business career, your philanthropy, um, all of the, the aviation, there's, there's quite a few streams. What, what kind of, were you able to give each one their own kind of a pillar to, in the book? Um, or or has, is there sort of one shining kind of message or thread? No, no, it's uh, Richard Walsh was really good there because, you know, I had the book and just so many different things I've been doing from flying to running businesses. And uh, he was the one who put it into sort of order. So it's basically the order of my life, but it does cover everything from adventure to business uh, to my views on population and also to my attempts on doing aviation reform. It's all in there. And I think it reads, people who have read it said it reads pretty well, Dick. No, congrats. That's so great because, of course, the last thing you want to do is have something that is going to help someone cure insomnia. Um, you, you want them staying up till two in the morning, uh, turning the pages. Yeah. And and was there was there something when you kind of started to reflect or go back into some some of your adventures or doing certain things that you had forgotten um, that you had done it or the detail was it was there something yes, in there yeah, definitely well one of the things in rereading the book now that i finished it just recently i had a read of it i think how incredibly lucky i've been to be alive because i've had uh, some really risky flights and also the balloon flights across australia across the tasman that's risky stuff and the fact that i've completed all of those journeys and still been alive i've never actually even called out search and rescue or had a mechanical delay or something like that. So I've been incredibly fortunate. I really owe my life to the incredible reliability of North American technology, because for example, in the little helicopter flight solo around the world, even though I had a a life jacket on and a life raft, if the engine had failed across the Atlantic in some of the terrible weather I was in, 
I, I'd have about 30 seconds to auto-rotate to the surface of the ocean. Then the helicopter would roll over in about 15 seconds. I'd have to somehow climb out, get into my life jacket and then climb into my life raft. The chance of doing that was very small. So luckily I never had an engine failure. Yeah, incredible, hey? And when you, um, when you reflect on some of those early flights that, um, that Kingsford Smith did and others did across the oceans in like yes. uh, in engines that um, defied gravity. Um, did you do when you think about that and then you think about the early aviators, do, do you feel like you've been clumped in there or are they a league of their own? How, how oh, you... In my, some people do clump me in with them, but in my view, they are a league of their own because of exactly what you said, the reliability of aircraft engines in those days was nothing like it. Also navigation. Now I'm very pleased. I've done five flights around the world, which are shown on the maps on the end cover of the book. But um, I uh, just couldn't believe that in, in those five flights that the navigation I was able to get away with because three of them were before GPS. Now that we have GPS, it's very easy to navigate. But my first three flights, I did have a thing called an Omega system in the helicopter but it would not work all the time and sometimes work in reverse. So I really couldn't rely on it. And at one stage I had to land on a ship between Japan and Alaska because the Russians wouldn't let me land. 1983 was the cold war. And the only way I could find the ship, I put a ham radio friend of mine on board the ship with a thing called a non-directional beacon. We'd made this up in Sydney, a little electronic box. And he got on the ship in Yokohama. And when they were halfway across the Pacific, he turned on the beacon, hooked it up to a 12 volt battery and turned it on, dropped an aerial up over the crane on the ship. And then I direction found in on that non-directional beacon to find the ship because I, had, I didn't have enough fuel to get back to Japan. And if I'd gone into Russia, at the minimum, they would have confiscated my aircraft. At the worst, they would have shot me down and I didn't want that to happen. Yeah, no, of course. Wow. And, and so, so the adventures, and you think about that. The, the if you think back to when you were to new, when you were really young, yeah. were there already was there already evidence or inkling? You know, like a, if parents are, are reading their book and they think of their kids and they go, "Oh my God, I've got another Dick Smith," you know, because all they wanted to do was was break out of the house and go wandering in the national park on their own. And you and like, were there already inklings of that when you were quite young? Well, possibly, but um, you've just touched on it. I mean, as a kid, I was very much a loner and my parents, there was only one rule come when I got home from school, I'd change out of your school uniform and then be back by dark. And I lived in the northern Sydney suburb of Roseville, lots of bush around and so I'd disappear into the bush by myself. But when it comes to my aviation adventures, I simply had no idea. I never thought I'd ever be able to fly. It was beyond comprehension to me. And it was only when I made enough money in Dick Smith Electronics and uh, a friend just down the road had started off a flying school, Laurie McIver, and he said, Dick, why don't you come out early in the morning and learn to fly? And at first of all, I thought, oh, oh, maybe. And so I then went out and he, in a little Cherokee, he taught me to fly. I think it took about 55 hours of flying. I'm not a natural pilot. And even then, if someone had said, Dick, one day you're going to do five flights around the world, I wouldn't have believed that it was possible. But what happened, I made lots of money when I was young, in my 30s, and that meant I could buy the best equipment. And one of the reasons I'm alive is I bought new aircraft and the most reliable aircraft to do the flights. And that's 
one of the reasons I've you know managed to get away with it. Yeah, and not only that, I mean, for people that don't realize, not only did you not know that you were going to be a pilot, but you, weren't you the chairman of the Civil a Aviation Authority? Or, or yes. it, yeah, that's amazing. I ended up being the chairman of the Civil Aviation Authority. And uh, in fact, there's a short chapter on that. I didn't want to bore people. But it's, uh, it's my main failure in life that I never could get the reforms through that I wanted to. We could be leaders in the world in aviation, especially flight training and recreational aviation. But I failed at that. And Peter Fitzsimon said to me, Dick, when you, if ever you write your autobiography, make sure you put the bad things as well as the good things. And as people who read the book will find, I haven't had many bad things happen. I've been really fortunate. But uh, that was one of my failures. By the way, it didn't affect me because I can afford the high costs of aviation in this country. It hasn't worried me, but it's, it was quite a disappointment that I couldn't bring the reforms in that were necessary. Mm. Now, people probably don't realise, but I did get to interview you five years ago when you wrote your book, which I have with me now, signed copy of Ball's Pyramid, 50 Years of Exploration. And... Um, it was, I guess, maybe I, you know, maybe I just didn't know you well enough, but um, you did tell me at the time that most people think of you Dick Smith, Dick Smith Electronics, but you had actually sold out of that, um, you know, oh, geez, it's almost 40 years ago now. Yes, yes, I'd sold out, they, I sold, sold out in 1983, 82, 83, and then Woolworths ran it for 29 years before they then sold it to Anchorage Capital, and then Anchorage Capital had it for three years, and Basically, it was sent broke, which was just a terrible disappointment to me. But it did operate for, I think, 47 years. And uh, it, of course, made me a lot of money in the early days. And even now, people come up to me and they say, oh, Dick, I got into electronics through your Funway kits and I used to buy all of my parts from you and I've now got a PhD in rocket engineering. And so they look at me in awe. Uh, people who read the book will realise just how dumb I was. And one of the chapters is headed... Uh, whatever will happen to Dick, because I was so completely hopeless at school. I came 45th out of 47th in fifth class, and my parents were really worried. I've never been tested, but today I suppose you'd say I'm a bit dyslectic or something like that. Yeah, well, I mean, I have ADHD, and I didn't know that until four years ago. Oh, right. And uh, my, when my son got diagnosed, and my wife said, I reckon you've got it as well. And so so yeah. I, um, I got 56% of my HSE, and went to uni and failed and dropped out. And, yep. and so there's these, there are these things. And one of the things I did learn for myself about once I realized, once I kind of got that information was that uh, with ADHD or in particular with me, you ju I just love doing what I want to do. And I hate doing the things I don't want to do. Right. Um, and I remember actually um, I did, when we were looking to list on the ASX five years ago, I did ask you whether you wanted to be our chairman. And yeah, and, I remember that. And you said to me, well, that's the last thing I want to do is be in a board meeting. Get that. <laughs> yeah, I think I told you I have an eight minutes attention span. Yeah. And I mentioned that in the book because on the CASA board, I had to sort of sit there all day at a board meeting. And that was one of the reasons I said no to you. I thought, oh, gee, they might be like CASA board meetings. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I, I can understand that. But that does get, like, I think you know, when people think about um, successful people or people that have accomplished various things in their lives, you want to know what was part of in their automatic engine room as it were yes. um and and so from now that you can reflect on everything what what do you feel um as, as some of the ingredients that that kind of just gets you to do certain things and get and latch onto an idea given yeah, look, given that you didn't do so well in school and yeah 
Well, Tony, I think I've, I've tried to cover this in the book and I put my success forces there about asking advice and surrounding yourself with capable people. And they are the, they're sort of the message I gave because I was absolutely hopeless at school. I, I left school at 15 and got a job as an apprentice, but hated that even worse to school. So I did go back and get my leaving certificate, but I don't have any other qualifications. I have a, a ham radio license. I'm very proud of that. And I'm a, I have a Queen Scout badge, which is pretty good sort of thing. And other things I'm proud about, but um, just to work out how I went from being so hopeless academically to then realizing when I was about 25 years of age, hey, I'm good at something. I'm good at running a business. And uh, by just asking advice and copying the success of others, I did well. And I've given this hopefully strong message in the book that anyone can do this. You don't have to be Einstein because I'm obviously not, but you can do well in business, especially in Australia. Yeah. Um, look, I've, I feel the same when I think about, you know, what are the, some of the ingredients, not that I've studied the way that you've gone about life or tried to emulate you. But when I think about my own kind of voyage of discovery and, and, and where my passion lies, I absolutely uh, endorse that. Now, uh, you probably go into it in the book, but um, because we have spoken before, uh, I I have to share with if, with those that live on the lower North Shore of Sydney who probably don't even realise that this. But if you've ever been to the Big Bear um, Shopping Centre in Neutral Bay, Cremorne area, um, and you and you've been there where there's you know a liquor place up the top and a Coles etc., well go down into the garage and in the garage. Um, you can just imagine kind of propped up against one of the walls. That's where Dick Smith Electronics actually started in the garage of the Big Bear Shopping Centre in like a makeshift kind of room, it seemed like. Um, it just, it's like to think that everything uh, accelerated from there is just astonishing. And that's, that's, Tony, what I've covered really well is those early days at the Big Bear, $15 a week rent, started with $610. I always tell people it was $600 from me and $10 from my fiance Pip. And I said, if ever we get divorced, that's how it's divided up. I understand. Everyone laughs and says it isn't. But uh, yes, the Big Bear was a place where everyone had gone broke. And I opened there. And I, I, I do concentrate on the early days of Dick Smith Electronics because I had no idea that I would do okay. And if someone had said, that little business you started with $610 would one day do one and a half billion dollars turnover per year, which is what Woolworths took it to. I wouldn't have believed it. But I've got in the book, I think I do concentrate on how to start a business. And so anyone who's interested in starting their own business, they should read this book. Mm, great, because that's that's one of the things. I mean, the, but do you then talk about, because a lot of people... I mean, you sold Dick Smith for 20 million or something like that in 1982-83, which is a lot of money, of course. Yep. Um, but you then really focused on real estate and people don't quite often understand that that's actually where, when they think about Dick Smith today, which is, you know, 40 years on, is yep. really you did put that money into into property, not, not residential either, it was commercial property. Yeah, and it's really interesting, that story, because that's covered in the very early days of the book, because what happened, I was at the Big Bear Neutral Bay, $15 a week rent, and I found these premises at Gore Hill, the famous where the Dick Smith building was at Gore Hill for many years, but they were $120 a week, and I thought, oh, that's too dear, but I'd met this very astute businessman, Ray Jessup, and he said, oh, Dick, he said, but you're already making enough money to cover that, and there'd be a lot more traffic. 
And so he, he came along with me. <coughs> he came along with me to talk to the owner of the building. And then he suddenly said, oh, we need an option to purchase the building. And I just thought, you've got to be joking. I don't have any money. But we got the option to purchase at $62,000. And within two years, I'd paid a deposit and borrowed some money from some uh, loan company and actually bought the building. And that was what we did from then on. Whenever we got a new Dick Smith building, and I ended up with 30 shops, we would pay a deposit where we could and pay off the building. And even though people think I've made my money out of uh, electronics and out of publishing with Australian Geographic, in fact, I've made most of my money out of investment in commercial property. And so that's what I've done very well out of. I mean, who couldn't do well from starting off in the 1960s to now? Commercial properties just always increased in value. I know it's incredible. But I think I think that's one interesting thing when people it's nice to be able to get into the back end and you for you to be able to share that honestly and go, look, quite frankly, that's really what I did because um making money in a business. And then not converting that into into other assets that yeah. can, that you can spread your risk and get a, that passive income from, so you don't really need to work because yeah. rent's coming through is, is super super important for for all aspiring entrepreneurs and and even just uh, people who are working who are trying to accumulate um, that investment base. So yeah, my, my luck, of course, was that I had two businesses because I I got enough from Dick Smith Electronics and had my commercial buildings. Didn't really need to work again. I was only 37 years of age when I sold it. But then I started Australian Geographic and uh, it was just to change my image. I've made this clear in the book. I ended up selling that for over $40 million to Fairfax. So I did well twice and that was a complete, I, I was completely amazed that I was gonna make all this money out of publishing, which as I put in the book, I knew nothing about. Not only that, for those that are in publishing who are listening to this, you're probably one of the only guys that's made a lot of money out of publishing. Right. <laughs> It's a, it's a, it's like mining the publishing industry. You, you drill and you mostly get nothing. So, ah. so what about what about some of the other things? Um, your personal life. Do you talk much about that, or have you kept that private um, with your family? I know I've covered all, all my personal life. Look, I've only had one marriage. Married Pip when she was well. We were engaged when we started Dick Smith Electronics, and then uh, I married. I, I talk about meeting her. She was in the Girl Guides. I was in the Boy Scouts, and. Uh, I met them, there was a, a function of the Rover Scouts and the, and the Rangers together. And I saw these two identical twins and I thought, wow, they're cute, I like them. But they were five years younger than me. I was 22 and they were 17. And I thought, oh, what a pity I'm not five years younger. But within a few weeks, I'd thrown my scruples, scruples away and decided I'd caught Pip, who was uh, the shy, quiet one of the two. And I married Pip when she was 19 and we're still happily married today 52 years later and the amazing thing was when she married me she'd have no idea that I was suddenly going to start adventuring and flying a solo helicopter around the world but because I think we'd come from the scouts and guides together a bit of risk taking took place when it came to rock climbing and bushwalking that she allowed me to go on that incredible solo flight around the world and supported me and there's one of the photographs in the book it's my favorite photograph I'm standing there with Pip and the girls at Darling Harbour helipad in Sydney. And it's when I'm about to leave on the last leg of my flight back to the United States in the helicopter. And I look at that photograph and I thought how mad I was to leave such a lovely young family and also how brave Pip was to let me do it. Mm, yeah. I mean, 
it's that's and congratulations from all of us me and everyone listening on on your marriage and it's very very inspiring and it's a it's a solid solid rock foundation to have a partnership like that in very fortunate uh, by the way in the book i cover the fact that my friends had tried to convince me to expand overseas and they said dick you could become another rupert murdoch because the formula we had with electronics and the catalog could be run in any english-speaking country england and the usa they said dick you know you should go and take it to england and then take it to the usa and i said in the book i could do that become another rupert murdoch no doubt have multiple marriages and uh, businesses and that but i decided just to stay here in sydney i sold the business to woolworths which was the best thing i ever did and uh, it was great that they could run it for 27 years employ lots of people and make lots of money in that time the reason the business failed, it's interesting, I do cover that, is that they opened too many shops. The Dick Smith Electronics was a business selling to electronic enthusiasts. There was room for about 100 shops in Australia. We had low cost, high margin items. Well, Woolworths kept expanding because as a public company, you know, you know the pressure to where's the growth, where's the growth coming from. So they ended up, instead of having 100 shops, they had 350 shops. And there weren't enough electronic enthusiasts, so they then started selling low-margin items like TV sets and things like that, which just is something that I never touched. And uh, in the end, they were still making them good money, but they weren't getting any growth. They couldn't get any growth, and that's why they sold it. And uh, in the end, the whole thing went it, it closed down because there was simply no way of making money out of so many shops when it should have been should have remained in its specialised electronic enthusiast business mm. so was there anything were there any things that you didn't do given that you've accomplished so much um whether when you when you reflect on it you, oh, you want you really wanted to do this kind of venture or start this business or um do you have a do you have a bucket list yeah well no i look this is one of the problems i've got you know when you write a book you're supposed to put all the terrible bad things that happen in your life because that makes it interesting and i haven't had that many bad things i suppose the one failure i had was i wanted to fly a helicopter from pole to pole and uh, it covers in the book how difficult it was for me to get to the north pole no one had ever flown a helicopter to the north pole and i eventually got there after three attempts but by then i realized hey this is too dangerous it's over my risk limit and so I gave up on the helicopter and I bought a twin, a, a little aircraft called a twin otter, a twin engine plane, which I then did fly pole to pole. Now, interestingly enough, over the years, there have been helicopters that have flown pole to pole. The first one was by a friend, Q Smith, he's called, and he crashed into Drake Passage and they lost the helicopter. And then another friend of mine, Jennifer Murray, she decided to fly pole to pole and they crashed in Antarctica and rode off the helicopter. So... It sort of showed me, gee, I think my risk limits are pretty well gauged because I've never on my adventures around the world, I've never even put a mark on an aircraft, let alone crashed and lost one. Mm. And are you still flying today? Yeah, still fly. I haven't flown for a few weeks because of the lockup, but um, I've got a helicopter here at Terry Hills and uh, also have a fixed wing aircraft. In the book, it covers, I bought an aircraft called a Cessna Caravan, which is a single engine very reliable jet turbine Cessna. And it normally can take up to 12 people. We normally just took four of us and we went twice around the world in it, including Antarctica and across the South Atlantic Ocean. And I even went to Timbuktu because my parents used to say to me, Dick, 
if, if I was naughty, we're going to send you to Timbuktu. And so I flew there just to see what it was like. And it was an interesting place. Yeah. So, so you're, I mean, you're obviously, um, people think of you as, as very Australian, dinky die as they come. Um, your origins, your family, did they come out of the UK or from other parts of the world? Yes, Where I came from five convicts, I descended from five convicts, including John Ryan, who was on the first fleet. So on my dad's side, it was convict-wise. On my mum's side, they came from England and then to New Zealand, then to Australia. So pretty well European sort of centric basis of my life. And uh, my grandfather was Harold Kasner, and he was a, a famous, world famous photographer. His works are now in the National Library. And I knew him until I was about nine years of age. And so I did have someone famous in the family earlier on. Right, but that, that sense of uh, being um, very much Australian, uh, Australia is your home, um, yes, I'm, I'm, I'm a proud, um, I'm called, a, Sir Peter Cosgrove called me on the back of my book. He called me, a, a, let's have a read here, a patriot, a great Aussie stirrer. To all this, I can add only one phrase, he is a true patriot. And I really like being called a patriot because I've done very well out of this country. I was won the lottery of life to be born here in the 1940s. I just missed out on having to go to Vietnam. And when I would have been in Vietnam, I was starting Dick Smith Electronics. So I've been very lucky, and I think being an Australian is one of the most fortunate things that can happen to anyone in the world. Mm, yeah, I agree with that. When, when you think about Australia today and about some of the, I mean, you've done a number of things with your, with your food business and, and other initiatives, um, population. What, you know, what do you see for the future of of our nation in terms of where we're heading? And uh, yes, I, th that's a really good question. And I do cover it in the epilogue in the book about what my concerns are. As everyone would know, I've always been concerned about ridiculous population growth. I'm pro-immigration, but I think it should be, we've had a long-term average of immigration about 75 a year, but John Howard took it up to over 200,000 a year. And that put such growth on that we would end up with 100 million people at the end of this century, which when my grandkids will still be alive. Now, not many people think 100 million is a sensible population number for an arid country like Australia. I believe we should have long-term immigration about 75,000 that will round off our, our population about 30 million. I'm concerned about world population. It's currently increasing at 80 million a year, which is ridiculous. And the United Nations has no policy because the religious groups are so strong against contraception that there's no policy on population. And to be increasing the population by 80 million, I believe that we are affecting the climate and to have another 80 million people who one day will require to be warm in, in uh, winter and not to be too hot in summertime and to be able to get good foods, that's gonna make it harder and harder to fix that problem. I'm pro-nuclear, I think we should, get into nuclear as quickly as we can. It's the safest form of energy and it's pretty well zero carbon. But they are just some of the things that I've thought of. Mm. And you talk about that in the book. I don't use, I don't really cover my views on nuclear, but I do say that I am a believer that we're affecting the climate. And I think we should be doing something about that. One of the problems, and, and I've benefited from this problem, uh, our, our current economic system requires perpetual growth in consumerism, in the use of resources and energy and in population. Otherwise, we're all scared it'll go into recession. 
but you can't have perpetual growth in resources. What we need to do is have growth in efficiencies and removing waste, but we just need to get away from the typical growth scenario because it's going to destroy us. It's just mm. far too many people in the end. And what do you think then about like, um, you know, all the energy um, conversations, ele electric vehicles? I know, I remember five years ago, I think it was the first Tesla that I ever saw was at your house when I came up, up to your property. Um, so like, and there was an article on SMH today, just how Norway um, is leading the way in terms of electric cars. Yep. Do, do you have any kind of um, belief around around well, it's going to be really difficult for us I'm, I'm i don't like the look of those huge wind farms and we're going to have to have 20 times as many because it's sort of putting industry into the wildness and so i don't like the look of them as i mentioned i believe one day we'll have to go to nuclear energy uh, bill gates in his latest book says that he can't see us going to low carbon without nuclear. I don't have the fears of nuclear that some people have. I look at France, it's 70% nuclear. Some of the best wines in the world, some of the best food come from France and they all live there. Where does the waste go? Well, they store it at the power station because it's so small. And so that's one thing I'm interested in. I also believe we should have a population policy in Australia because if it's human induced climate change, which I believe it is, if you're going to, go from 25, 27 million population in Australia to 100 million, it's going to be four times harder to fix the, uh, the problem with carbon because uh, we, especially Western people, people in a Western society use a hell of a lot of coal and fossil fuels at the moment. Mm. So given that it's current, what are your thoughts around the pandemic and, and the way that um, the world has handled it, the way Australia has handled it, the way that... Yeah, well, I think I've been pretty positive about our leadership and I think it, we've handled it pretty well. I, I must admit, I don't like the 10 weeks or however I've been locked up here in Terry Hills. I'm getting, getting ready to get out again. But um, I mean, that just shows you what can happen when you've got no idea that something like this could happen. And it does depend on population. One of the problems we've had is people living in these home units, I call them vertical cruise liners, like jammed into little tiny boxes, living like termites. And if you get a pandemic, it just goes right through those buildings. And the reason we have those buildings is we have a lot of poor people. And I started, I mentioned in the book, a group called the Dick Smith Fair Go Group. And one of the things was it said that wealthy people like me should pay 15% more tax and it should be shared with the poorer people. Well, that got nowhere. No politician was going to support that. And I'm am concerned that we have 100 billionaires in Australia and only 15% of them are known as philanthropists. I think that's shocking. In the United States, if you're wealthy, you have to be openly known as a philanthropist or you wouldn't be accepted by society. Yeah, we have a lot of wealthy people who are very miserable. I think we have a lot of wealthy people who hardly pay any tax. I have one chapter in the book, which believe it or not is called, Never Complain About Your Tax. And it was because my dad told me when I was 15 and I came home from work and instead of getting my three quid or two quid or whatever it was, some money had been taken out for tax and I complained to him. And he said, never complain about your tax. Look at the, the fantastic roads, the schools, the hospitals, the education, everything we have, never complain about your tax. And from that point on, I haven't. Mm, yeah, that's absolutely correct. It doesn't come out of nothing, that's for sure. No. No, so you should be proud of it. And, and uh, I've paid a lot of tax in my life. I've never been into 
tax minimization or avoidance. And I tell people about it because I'm proud of it that I'm doing the right thing. Yeah, good on you. So when when we, I mean, you mentioned that the book is very much geared towards um, entrepreneurship and inspiring people. When you hear over the years, I guess like when I do my keynotes, one of the things that I tell people is that I have ADHD. And it's interesting for me that when people come up to me at the end of a, of a, a talk, mostly they want to talk about mental health or that they have ADHD or some condition. And, and they're very appreciative of me sharing because of what has been accomplished with Booktopia, that they can all of a sudden relate to that. And yes. so, so when you think about the people that you get to talk to or talk from, or they come up and you say, you inspire me about doing this, what, you know, what are they going to get from the book or what do they generally get from, from, you know, hearing your story and that, that inspires them, like you said, um, yes all the rocket scientists that uh, ended up you know, having bought some science kit from uh, Dick Smith. Um. Well, I think the, my, the working title of my book was Fun Way to a Fortune. And what they're going to get from the book is lots of fun things. I mean, I towed a fake iceberg into Sydney Harbour. I tell the true story of that on April Fool's Day. I jumped a double-decker bus over 15 motorbikes because Evil Knievel was doing the opposite. And uh, so there's lot, I had a tremendous fun life we had the electronic Dick van that used to drive around Sydney. And people would say to me, oh, Dick, we see all those vans of yours. They're fantastic. And I said, there's only one of them. But it was so noticeable. And, of course, they'll read the true story of the Dickhead matches where I was so angry to find that Vegemite was owned by the American cigarette company, uh, Philip Morris, that I decided that I'd bring out. And then I found redhead matches were owned by the, been taken over by the Swedish match company. I got so angry, I bought our dickhead matches and on the back it said, uh, we'd have to be complete dickheads to sell all of our famous brands off overseas and rob our children of the future. Now, I'm glad you're, a, you're an endangered species. You're, you're an Australian startup public company and doing well. There's not many of those and please don't sell out to someone from overseas, would you, Tony? Do my very best. You never know what the share. Now, once you end up on the ASX, um, your influence is diminished, but um, exactly right. definitely not my intention. Yes. Uh, my intention is to buy up the rest of the world. Uh, Wonderful. Yeah. Um, but I'll tell you one thing in the book, which you're talking about growing all the time. I do bring up the fact that it's impossible in a finite world to, to continuously grow in the way we have. And that's something we've got to handle. How do you run our system of capitalism so it lives so it lives in balance like everything else in nature and that's going to be really tough it's got to be possible but that's one thing we've got to do is live in balance you can't i think we use something like one and a half times the world's resources every year well that can't go on forever so living in balance is how i end up the book saying that's what we've got to do and and so when alan and Unwin got to see the final product of of the book What's their, what's their take on it in terms of the appetite in the market, in terms of... The... Well, I haven't really asked that, and they didn't really see the final. The story was that I'd been working on the book for quite a long time, but I'd never really been able to get something that I thought was successful. But I sent it to Richard Walsh, who's one of their consulting publishers, the famous Richard Walsh from Oz Magazine, and he ran Kerry Packer's organisation and also ran Angus and Robertson, and he really saved it. He sorted chapters around and did his masterpiece to go from a book which I thought wasn't really satisfactory to publish to something that I think is really good. So I have to thank Richard Walsh for that. And I think people will see his touch in the book that he just really 
turned it into something that was fantastic that that, that i believe is quite fantastic mm, yeah he is a legend that is for sure yeah. um and imagine having him spending lots of time on my book i felt embarrassed in the end that he'd spent so much time on it i only hope they pay him well, well <laughs> maybe maybe if if they paid you in advance like 20 years ago he was determined uh, to to get it yes finished, but... that was mine now he always just thought dick you've got a great story and he'd published, an, I'd, I'd done a book about my first solo flight from just a bit from Fort Worth in America to Sydney. And he published that at Angus and Robertson. And but we never went on and my autobiography has never been done. This is the first time it's been done. So I'm 77 years of age. And that meant I can put lots of my, well, all of my life in the book. Mm, that's so, so terrific. So, so when, when people think about, I mean, of course, we want people to go out and buy your book uh, absolutely i mean yeah. from booktopia or from anyone quite frankly just get get a copy and when you think about um the the public i know it's hard to tell sometimes what they're going to think of it but if they're thinking about who who's the best like is it for for young people for you know to be inspired here's a story or is it for is it for yeah. everyone old people or people i see a, i see a different market i see a, a different market I, I first of all i think it's a great book for any parent or grandparent who has a child or grandchild who's pretty dumb at school and they're worried about, they certainly should buy my book because they'll not worry as much. Mm. I think that's very important. Then any person who's thinking of starting their own business, I think should buy this book. And then thirdly, anyone who's into adventure, in other words, doing highly risky adventures. I tell the story of flying my balloon across Australia and this balloon, I mean, it weighed about two tonnes. At one stage, we were doing, wait for it, 160 kilometres an hour. Unbelievable, at 23,000 feet. And we knew that we had to land at less than about 20 kilometres an hour. Otherwise, we'd be badly injured because the balloon just drags along, smashing the gondola against things. And uh, after 40 hours in the air, hardly being able to sleep in this tiny gondola at 20,000 feet with oxygen plugged in, we then started descending and I looked out and we got down to the Clarence River Valley and in the little valley where we, by fluke, because we started off in Carnarvon on the West Coast, we could have landed anywhere between Tasmania and Cape York. And we came down into this valley and there was no wind. I mean, I've been incredibly lucky in my life. That's probably the riskiest thing I've ever done. And you'll read the story that I lived and I'm here to tell the story about it. Yeah, there's, it's just a, a plethora <laughs> of... of one one lucky adventure after another there there is and uh, i think on the back cover uh, peter fitzsimons has said a compelling yarn of an extraordinary australian life one that he was lucky not to lose on about 10 occasions to my count yes and so he's numbered up the times i've been in awkward positions in the helicopter or in the fixed wing plane or in the balloon that i could have lost my life and i've been incredibly lucky and that's all i can say i'm amazed that i'm here writing being able to write this book at 77 yeah and and so i mean they all would probably be dead now or in their 90s but your teachers to to what dick wrote a book are you you know like seriously are you like yes yeah well, i put most of it on tape and then i got lots of writers to help me hard whaling from australian geographic helped me so it was me putting everything on tape, getting it transcribed, and then getting people to try and put it into better English. Right, okay. And that's been my life because, see, I used to write the editorial at Australian Geographic and 
people thought I was this wonderful writer and intellectual, but they didn't realize that I put the points down and then I got really good writers. Uh, one of the success forces is in my book, surround yourself with capable people. And I've always been good at doing that in life. Yeah, I, I agree. Like, um, and, and I mean, I'm fortunate the same to have been able to um, afford or Toby's been able to afford that as well. But I can assure you, I really lean on that. Like it's not, I just don't do it because I'm lazy. I do it because of, out of necessity and because that is absolutely the right thing to do by our customers and now by our shareholders. Um, yes. Of yep. course, of course. Well, you have a big responsibility. You're running a public company and I admire you for it and you're doing well, which is good. Yeah, thanks. That only makes me more nervous. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, it's, it's all good. It's all good. So, so 77, still young, so much left to... Uh, you know, like, is this, this could be a trilogy. It could be like a, you know, Lord of the Rings. And this is only part one, the, the, the fellowship of the ring. No, I don't think so. This was a lot of hard work to get this book. I'll not, I won't be doing that again. I can tell you. And your adventures do you, um, obviously you're still flying. Oh, by the way, with your flying, I know you've got your helicopter at, at, in the backyard. Yep. And because we're restricted about going five kilometers out of our, out of our LGA or out from our yep. home, are you able to just fly up vertically? like and yeah. be and you well, know that, that's what i've been doing because you should fly your helicopter at least every three weeks they're not designed to sit around doing nothing so i have been just taking off from here and going flying up around hawkesbury river and back down again which is about five kilometers i don't know if there's a particular rule for helicopters but i've been staying at home and only leaving here by air and not like going anywhere else other than out and back yeah that's a nice feeling be able to use your vertical space um, yes. As well as your, uh, every, the rest of us have been restricted by horizontal space, but you've been able to, like, you know, within a 5K zone, but, and you're going up to 30,000 feet. I mean, that's... Yes. Unfortunately, guess, the helicopter is not pressurized, but look, a helicopter is a magic carpet. And one of the things I've communicated in the book is how I changed my life when, I'll tell you quickly the story, I've been flying fixed wing planes and I've never been such a good pilot. And I was forced down at Narandra in bad weather and I was waiting at the airport and a helicopter came in and landed and I couldn't believe it. So I walked across to the pilot and I said, how come you're flying this helicopter in such bad weather? And he said, oh, he said, with a helicopter, Dick, he said, you just fly under the cloud and if ever it gets too low, you land and have a cup of tea with somebody. Now, the minute he said that, I, my, my eyes lit up and I thought, that's what I need. I, that's my type of flying. So I went off, ordered a helicopter, and I've had one for the last 40 years. And being able to land anywhere and have a cup of tea with somebody makes it incredibly safe. I call my helicopters the best off-road machine in the world. We've done the Canning Stock route, the Gibb River Road in the helicopter, and all around Australia. And plus, I've flown twice around the world by helicopter. People don't realise that. Having done my solo flight, I wanted to take Pip on a helicopter flight. And so we bought a Sikorsky helicopter, the same type that the Queen has. And we took off from our front lawn here in Terry Hills. And eight months later, we were back on the front lawn, having flown around the world the other way. And we did this at about 500 feet altitude. So you see the most wonderful sights. Absolutely fantastic. Mm, yeah. If that's not inspiring enough, um, uh, nothing is yes so congratulations dick um and to to finish the book um the longest adventure 20 years um your all your other ventures adventures were a lot shorter than that yep. but a 20 20 year accomplishment and we look forward to supporting it and and hearing all the feedback from people who are 
who are uh, who have read it. And yeah, I ask everyone to give it to someone as a gift, as a Christmas present. That'll help Booktopia and it'll help me. Yeah. <laughs> give it to someone. Who's like, I reckon it's a great Christmas present to anyone. Yeah, congratulations. And uh, any anything in closing before we... Um... No, no, I think we've covered everything. You're an absolute master at this. You should have got into podcasting earlier. <laughs> Thanks so much. All the best. Thank you for listening to the Booktopia podcast channel. Don't forget, you can subscribe to us on SoundCloud and iTunes for free and get access to hundreds of author discussions, book analysis pieces, and more. Or, if your eyes need a workout, head to Booktopia TV on YouTube. Don't forget, for all books featured in this podcast, and for access to a whole bunch of other fun content on our blog, head to Booktopia, Australia's local bookstore, at booktopia.com.au.